This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Mario Martinez. Mario is a clinical neuropsychologist who lectures worldwide on how cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. He's the founder of Biocognitive Science, a new paradigm that identifies complex discoveries of how our cultural beliefs affect our immune, nervous, and endocrine systems. What sounds true, Mario Martinez has written a new book called The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success, where he challenges the reader to embrace a radically new paradigm for health and well-being and reveals the way our cultural beliefs impact our immune system. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mario and I spoke about moving beyond the pale, how we can express excellence in our lives, even if it means being more successful than others in our identified tribe. We talked about three archetypal wounds and what Mario calls their healing fields. We talked about shame, abandonment, and betrayal, and the respective healing fields of honor, commitment, and loyalty. And finally, we talked about what it means to feel worthy enough to actually make changes in our lives. Here's part one of my conversation with Mario Martinez on his new book, The Mind-Body Code. I'm delighted to be here today with neuropsychologist Dr. Mario Martinez. Mario, I think of you as an original thinker, and that's not an easy thing to find, someone who has a lot of original ideas to contribute. And one of the main ideas that I've gathered from your work is that we can expand our thinking of mind-body phenomenon to include the culture. We can think of mind-body culture. I've seen people now who introduce the word mind-body as one word, the mind and the body constantly interacting. But here you introduce the idea of the mind-body and the culture interacting. So let's begin right there, and can you help us understand this cultural component? Yes, the the cultural component, um, I think, was fascinating to me because when I studied neuropsychology, you're studying the American brain. <laughs> and, and, and then you think, or the Western brain, and you think that's how it works. You don't think that their culture has any components uh, to, to contribute to the change. But then you go to, um, to the Eastern cultures, and you look at functional MRIs and uh, uh, resonance type of uh, um, um, assessments of the brain, and, and they function differently. And the reductionistic model said, well, there's an Eastern brain and there's a Western brain. And it's not that. The brain is so pliable, and the brain is cultural in the sense that the brain learns the cultural premises that we live. The immune system does the same thing too. So for me, that was a tremendous awakening to see that that the culture, although it's so subtle and so invisible, it's constantly there. Um, If you, for example, if you shame someone in in this culture, uh, you'll have inflammation, molecules that cause inflammation. But But you can't shame someone in the East as you do in the West. So for example, to be shamed here is a personal, we have an individualist kind of uh, culture. I have been shamed. If you go east, my group, my family has been shamed. So you won't get inflammation if uh, they shame you. You get inflammation if the family feels, or the person feels that the family's been shamed. So that's fascinating to see how the immune system can determine the interpretation of, of an emotion that's, that's very negative. 
Uh, and, and to me, that was fascinating. That's how I started then looking at the culture. It's not just mind and body, but it's mind, body, and the culture. And perception is very cultural. Uh, remember uh, in, in, in high school uh, psychology, the, the illusions, the, uh, what they have, uh, for example, two lines, and one line has arrows going inward, and the other one has arrows going outward. And the optical illusion is that the one going outward looks bigger than the other, and you can't, mm -hmm. you can't make your eyes uh, see it uh, equal. So that was, a, that was a monolithic statement that that's an optical illusion for everybody. Then they go to uh, uh, southern uh, African uh, tribes that, that are desert dwellers. They don't have that illusion because they have the horizontality and the cultural um, processes that they have. So when you show them, they, you ask them, what are these uh, lines like? And they say, they're both the same. So you see, you're constantly um, defying what we thought was a monolithic brain. So help me understand what some of the most important implications are from starting to think in terms of mind-body-culture dynamics? I think the most important is when, you, uh, because I, I, as you know, I brought anthropology and psychoneurominology together. So the most important one is to see what the tribe does. We're still tribal. What we do within the pale and what we do beyond the pale. And let's say within the pale, your brain learns what is aesthetics, uh, what is uh, transcendental? What are we doing here? What is uh, uh, the concept of, of wellness? What is the concept of ethics? And that's how you, it works. But since tribes are collective, uh, they have a collectivist kind of mindset because way back in the cave days you had to protect yourself and you literally had to be within the pale. Now explain that phrase, within the pale. Within the pale, that's a great word. When people say beyond the pale, the pale was a, it's an old English word that means the, the fence or the wall. Uh -huh. To be within that. If you're within that, you're protected, you are, um, you're part of the group, and you are a contributor to the collectivism. When you go beyond the pale, you're no longer protected. And the, the key here to your question is that when you go beyond the pale and you succeed, at first you're the hero, but when you come back, they cut you back to size. Yeah. Because what they're saying is you can't make it beyond the pale because then you'll leave us and we won't have the, the collective power. Mm -hmm. So why is it important? Because when we leave the pale, and when we go on our own, and we start identifying ourselves, and, and we, we start thinking, well, I'm not so bad in math. I was told I was bad in math, and here I am. What we do, if we're not aware, is we'll say, well, it must be just a coincidence. And you drop it. And you begin to kill the potential self-esteem that you could build. So beyond the pale is define what uh, brought you down in, in, within the pale and accepting and learning with what I call the new subcultures. So, for example, you were told that you were bad with directions, and you bought that, and, you, and your brain will, will confirm whatever you tell it, and any time you're bad with directions, it confirms. Any time you're good with direction, that's an exception by chance. So all of a sudden, you, you leave the pale, and you begin to, on your own, see that you are good with directions. Well, you need a subculture that begins to support that and says, Tammy, yeah, you are good with, uh, with directions. And that subculture is what we try to work. When people come out, this is why placebo doesn't work uh, without support. If, if you have a placebo effect, which is the beginning of, of, of healing, and it's not supported by a cultural editor or someone powerful in the new subculture, it dies. But if it's supported, it continues the healing process. Now let's talk about this idea of moving beyond the pale, because I can think of so many examples where people have done that. They've been extraordinary in a certain kind of way. And before you know it, everybody's trying to tear them down. Yes. And it seems like now there's a disincentive to be extraordinary. So how does somebody get beyond that in their life? Well, that, that, we still, we're still tribes. We, we're still tribal, and we're still going to do the collective. One of the things to do it is to be aware that you're controlled by that, by that, by that uh, uh, collectivism. And what you need to find out is how are you going to be punished when you go beyond the pale, the three archetypal wounds that I talk about in biocognition, are you going to be abandoned emotionally? Are you going to be betrayed? Or are you going to be shamed? And the reason you have to know that is so you know how to heal it. Mm -hmm. When you're beyond the pale and you go back to visit and they tell you, uh, I've worked with uh, some very uh, well-known country music uh, um, people, artists, and they go beyond the pale and they're 
they're, they're the heroes. But, but when they come back, oh, so you don't have any time for me. Shaming. Yeah. So what do they do? They ask themselves, I'm either going to stay with my success on my own or I'm going to go back and pay the price. And the only way they take you back is as a failure. Yeah. They'll accept yourself. Oh, you're, but you can never go back as a success because it's incompatible with collectivism of the, of the uh, tribe. So there, there are techniques and things that I talk about in the book that about how to actually uh, create uh, the culture, subcultures of wellness to heal the wound. And when you go back, then you go back to visit, but you go back to visit without getting toxified. So it sounds like what you're emphasizing because that is this subculture of wellness. And I say that because I think lots of people can relate to this idea of going beyond the pale in some part of their life. I mean, I can think of an example, like everybody in my family, quote unquote, only achieved this level of success. And here I am noticing that I'm becoming much more successful than people in my family. This isn't actually my case, but I'm thinking of someone yes, I no, know. Yes, no, but it's very typical. And, yeah, you know, and is it okay for me to be so much more successful or so much happier or happier in love, etc., than all of the people, the tribe from whom I came? So are, are you saying the key to working that out is this new, you're calling it a subculture of wellness, meaning a new group of, now I have a new tribe that celebrates that celebrates your greatness. Yeah. Yes. And you get out of the manipulative pseudo-humbleness that you're taught in, in the collective tribe. I love your hair. Oh, this, you know, I didn't do anything with it today. It's, it's, a, it's an apology for your greatness and for your gift. So it never helps self-esteem. And it's not real because you, you don't, you know, you know you're good, but you can't. The little girl says, Mommy, why am I so beautiful? No, darling, don't say that. You never say you're beautiful. So you're learning to keep your greatness within certain controls, but it's a manipulative kind of thing. It's not real. The real humble person, if I say, Tammy, I love your eyes, thank you, thank you, that's a beautiful gift that I have. You know, it's, 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 it's honest, and, yeah. it's, and that's what the immune system responds to, not the pseudo-humbleness. So, but the key here is that, let's say you leave the tribe, Yeah. but what you have learned is what I call the intimate language of love, from your parents, from your culture editors, teachers, and so forth. And that intimate language of love has a built-in booby trap so that when you leave the pale, you're going to be punished. So one of the booby traps would be abandonment, let's say. Yeah. Okay, so you leave the tribe, and then you're abandoned. But here, on that side, on your side, what happens, though, is since it's built-in, you feel that you have abandoned. Not only does the tribe feel abandoned, but you feel you've, you've, you've abandoned the tribe. Yeah. And then there's that guilt that comes in. Well, yeah, I'm doing really well and my family didn't do real well. So in that case, what you have to do is you have to work through the abandonment that you feel for the people that didn't make it like you did, for example. Yeah. Uh, in Uruguay, they, it's very funny because they have a lot of issues with that. They say, we can forgive anything except success. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's cultural. That's a, that's a tribe. So there are a lot of things in the book that, that actually give you ways to Come out and accept your greatness and then work through so that joy can be uh, sustainable. Joy can be dangerous if self-esteem is low. Hmm. Now, you used an interesting phrase. You said the culture editors. What do you mean by that? The culture editors are the people that shape you. And, and these are the, the people that the culture endows power in a context. A doctor in a hospital, uh, uh, a clergy in, in a temple or a church a father, mother at home, teacher in school, they have a lot of power for nocivo and placebo. They can do harm or they can do good. And those culture editors actually shape you. They tell you who you are, not who you think you are. And of course, you have personal experiences that tell you I'm good here or there, but they basically shape you into who you are for your own good. For your own good is a dangerous thing <laughs> because they beat you up and it's for your own good. So you have all of that and you leave and you think, oh, I'm on my own now, I'm fine. This is why some people get upset when somebody says, you're beginning to act and look like your parents because you unfold that. There's a side of you that wants to be beyond the pale and there's a side of you that knows that if you go beyond the pale, you're going to have to pay a price totally subconscious. Mm -hmm. You don't know. So it's a struggle. This is why many people, as you said, when they make it, they sabotage themselves and they go back to known misery mm -hmm. rather than unknown joy. Okay, so I still want to focus on this idea of moving beyond the pale, and having love at the same time, how both of these things are going to happen. 
Can you help me with that? Sure. Let, let's give. Let's use an example. Okay. You learned in your intimate language of love. You learned shame. Okay. They that you you they don't teach it to you directly. It's it's by what you watch, and and let's say your parents shame you, and since you have to love them because they're more powerful than you and you need them, then the language of love is tainted with shame. So you speak shame fluently with your. So you go out, and who do you look for? Somebody to shame, or somebody to shame you. So what do you do? Each of the um, each of the wounds has a, a healing field. So what do you do with that? Knowing that you have that wound, and let's say your partner has a wound of abandonment, you create a subculture with your partnership, where you're going to be living a consciousness of commitment, which is for abandonment, and honor, which is for shame. And as you do that, not only do you create what I call the pristine love, you create pristine love, but your health improves. Because you're no longer living within the pro-inflammatory kinds of things that happen with shame, and the cortisol that you feel when you're uh, when you're in abandonment. Okay, so let's break this down for people because you you mentioned this three archetypal wounds: abandonment, shame, and betrayal. And you've been starting to refer to them, and that each one has, we could say, uh, an antidote or a healing field. Yes. And you've been starting to speak about that abandonment has the healing field of commitment, shame, the healing field of honor, and betrayal, the healing field of loyalty. Okay, now this is a lot, I think, for people yes. to take in, but let's see if we can break it down. So first of all, how did you come up with these three archetypal wounds and these three healing fields? How did you develop this model? That's a great question because it's really important to, cl to clarify. As I was looking at different cultures, I was looking at how people were wounded. And I couldn't find anything beyond those three anywhere I went. They're, they're, for example, guilt comes from shame and, and uh, anger comes from, uh, be, from betrayal. You, just, you, you subsume everything under those three in every culture that I studied, African, Asian, actually doing field work in those places. So I felt those were archetypal, and I call them archetypal because they happen everywhere. The culture will decide how they're going to shame you, but shame is the, the cultural uh, archetype that, uh, that, that's used to to, to keep you within the pale. Okay, and then this idea that each of these wounds has what you call a healing field. And, and what do you mean by a healing field? A healing field is, is one that, that actually resolves the, uh, the wound at an intellectual, at a cognitive, and also psychoneurological level. And I also found that every culture has honor, they have commitment, and they have loyalties that are really important for a society, for a culture to have. Those three things, if you have those three things, you don't need to learn anything from biocognition, but it's very difficult because we're taught the, the, that language of love that's entangled with, with the wounds. So as I was looking at that, and I, and I, and I uh, challenged myself, I got to find the fourth one. Never did. And I found the healing, uh, talking to shamans, talking to doctors, talking to people that, that do healing, at, whether it's Western science or, or, or Eastern um, myth mythology or whatever, they had intuitively ways of working through the shame with honorable kinds of things. And if you didn't learn honor, you never got out of your shame. It can't, it can't be dealt with intellectually. So help me understand an example of that. You're talking about someone who experienced a lot of shame. And I presume all three of these might be present in our life to different degrees that, for many yes, of us. Yes. Many of us carry all three yes. archetypal wounds. Uh, and one is more salient, but you're right. Uh, I carry all three. <laughs> so, yeah. and one is more salient than the other. But I'll give you a, a clinical example. Okay. So it's real uh, clear. This man was very wealthy. He came from a small town, and his father was the town alcoholic. And his father died because he bet someone that he could eat glass Ouch. while he was drunk. Ouch. So he was the, not only the, the, the alcoholic, but he was the son of the man who ate glass. Tremendous yeah. shaming. Yeah. Tremendous shaming. So he starts uh, doing really well, and, and he loved to play the uh, Cuban uh, drums. Okay. So what does he get? He gets inflammatory, uh, uh, gets arthritis, left hand and right hand. It wasn't his foot, it wasn't his eyes, it was to kill the joy. So he oh. couldn't play the drums that he loved. And then he started having financial problems. So come in to see me. And we start working on it. So what we did, the technique, is that we went back to the times when he felt the shame. And he remembered that hearing on the radio, uh, this gentleman uh, thought he could uh, eat glass and, you know, the shaming. And where do you embody that? Where did he feel that? 
the moment that he that he felt that the pain uh, intensified around the hand, the left hand mainly, and and the inflammation was was there. So we did the embodiment. First, you have to embody the wound. What what do you what is it that you feel? How is it manifested in the body? And because the immune system is very biosymbolic, it'll it, it responds to wounds as it does to pathogens. So we did that. Then the healing field was okay. Let's go back now, and this is under relaxation, not hypnosis, under relaxation. Let's go back to the first time that you felt honorable. And since he lived in a lot of shame, it's hard to identify something honorable. So it's not easy. So we worked on it, and he got to a point where he found that when he was nine, he was a big guy, and he protected a little boy from being bullied. And he felt very uh, proud of himself, and he felt, yeah. and okay, where do you feel that? And what happens is, since honor is a much more evolved emotion, you feel it just radiating all over your body. The shaming and the other wounds are very primitive, and you feel it more localized. So he felt the shame in his hands and in his chest, and he felt the honoring as a, a, a kind of a, as a, a up and down feeling. Mm. The moment that he was able to do that, the pain stopped. Mm. He went home. He called me three hours later, and he, and he said the inflammation is gone, and never came back. Now that's not something that happens all the time. Yeah, these are exceptions. Sure. But then I started uh, researching shame as an anti-inflammatory, working with women who have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And I say women because it's mostly women, rheumatoid okay. arthritis. And clinically, been able to show significant improvement. And now in Uruguay, we're going to be testing the immunological components of the anti-inflammatory value of, of honor. So if I want to bring more of this healing field of honor in my life, I can think back to times when I acted honorably and feel that experience, see myself in that light. Are there other things? Can I start acting in more honorable ways? That yes. sounds like a good idea. No, exactly. That's the next step. Because the brain is, is evidence-based. You can't tell it, oh, I'm, I'm honorable. And the brain's going to say, if, you, if it could speak you know, anthropomorphically, show me the evidence. So what do you do? You go back to the evidence that you have and you embody it, and then you begin to look for new evidence of honor in your life. And all of a sudden, the healing starts. I'm honorable here, I'm honorable there, and you embody. Every time you're honorable, you embody it. You have the, the print, the fingerprint of what it feels like to be honorable. But what will happen is that when you're in the shame, your body will let you know immediately. And we know we're in the, in the, in the uh, archetypal wounds when we overreact to something. Yeah. Somebody says you're late. Well, what do you mean I'm late? And, yeah, and yeah. you're putting the history of the wound. Yeah. And at that moment, you stop and you do the technique, it cleans it up. It's so... Uh, deceptively simple uh, or dece deceivingly uh, simple in a sense that you don't think anything's going on. Yeah. Uh, you think, oh, I'm not doing anything. And, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, I'm feeling better or I'm not beating myself up anymore. Another good thing is that the brain is very intelligent. If you catch yourself doing something and you punish yourself, it's not going to remind you again. But if you say, I caught myself being shameful, ah, I'm going to celebrate that. I'm going to celebrate that I caught myself. Yeah. What the brain does, it helps you catch yourself more. Yeah. Now, I notice, Mario, as you take me through some of these examples, I go into a slight dreamy state listening to you. I start dreaming about my own life and the lives of people I know. And I want you to go through, therefore, a couple more examples to help really illustrate the point. Because I think you've now taken us through an example of shame. But let's backtrack to an example of abandonment in someone's life, and how commitment is the healing field for abandonment. Okay. Uh, first, um, I think to, to give uh, the audience a better understanding, uh, they each have a temperature, and they uh -huh. have a physiological, uh -huh. almost uh, a psychoneurological. Shame feels hot, because it causes inflammation, and inflammation is hot. So when you're shamed, you feel hot. You notice that your, your throat gets red, and you feel... That's a physiological response to a word. Abandonment feels cold, huh. and you feel more of the cortisol and the constriction of blood. That's where you get cold. And um, the um, betrayal is hot, and you have quite a bit of cortisol in an aggressive way. You feel angry. Yeah. When you're betrayed, you feel angry. You don't feel ashamed, and you don't feel cold. You, you get angry and hot. Yeah. In, in Spanish, they say, me caliente, I got hot, which is another way of saying I got angry. Yeah. So it's there. So you have to know that. So you know the, that how you feel. Now, later... You can get angry at all three because you're an adult. 
you can get angry when they shame you and you get angry when they but initially that's how it works but let's take abandonment okay okay you are um, uh, at a meeting you're you're coming into a meeting and you're late and the person who's running the meeting says uh, I can always count on you on being late and all of a sudden yeah. you feel this anger yeah. initially it was it was cold but now it's anger and, and, and you're, just, you're overwhelmed. So what do you do? You realize that, that you're bringing the history of abandonment. You stop, you breathe. You don't try to get rid of the tension. You breathe and you say to yourself, okay, now what is the antidote to commitment? What is the commitment that I can make right now? I can make a commitment that I'm going to be on time. I can make a commitment that I can talk to this person and, and let them know that I have boundaries, that they can't treat me this way. I can make a commitment that... Uh, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to correct me being uh, late, never blaming, always owning. And that alone gets you out of the abandonment and gets you into commitment consciousness, which is the healing. But, but the key is to find if you're overreacting 99% of the time, you're using one of the wounds. So when you talk about commitment consciousness, it's not so much commitment as in a marital commitment or something no. like that. It's commitment... To you. Uh-huh. Commitment to you honor to you. Why? Because it's your bioinformational field that's wounded. So the bioinformational field has to be committed to you, has to be honorable to you, and has to be uh, um, loyal. But the side effect is that if you're honorable with yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to be attracting people that are honorable. Now, it's interesting, this use of the phrase bioinformational field. So my bioinformational field may lack commitment in it. Yes. And that's something that might someone else could sense or you could look I mean tell me more about that how my bioinformational field the way to look at it is like um, it some others have called uh, uh, have called it a, a, a morphic field uh, I call it bioinformational because it's not an energy it's information with biology and that information with biology is you and it has horizons you have beliefs there that let's say tall people are intelligent uh, uh, Asians are good with math, you know, those, or, or bad with math or whatever. And that's your feel. When those horizons get shaken, you either let new information in or you reject it. So that bioinformational field may be lacking commitment consciousness. And what uh -huh. you do is you speak abandonment, you attract abandonment, and you have the physiology of abandonment, which is not healthy. So as, you, as, as the bioinformational field begins to change, you say, not only am I going to at uh, committed because uh, there's an uh, uh, there's an abandonment wound here, but I'm going to create evidence of me being uh, committed, and most important, I'm going to look at the what I call the emotional vampires that are not permitting me to be committed, uh, that are, that are abandoning me or allowing me to abandon them. So you see, uh, biocognition is really by information in the sense that we have co-authors in what we do. We have a tribe that taught us how we are. And if you don't look at it as a systems approach, change doesn't occur. That's why change is so difficult. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, so let's take an example of someone who has a history of being abandoned in relationships. All my partners leave me for somebody else, something like that. That's their story. It's happened, you know, half a dozen times. What could that person do in terms of bringing in this healing field to change that bioinformational blueprint, if you will? That's a good way to put it. Yeah, blueprint. Uh, well, first is to, to realize that they are co-authors in the abandonment. You're not being abandoned. You're a co-author. Not to blame, but you're a co-author in the abandonment. Knowing that you're a co-author in the abandonment, you can empower yourself and say, okay, if I'm a co-author, then I can change that. How did I contribute to that abandonment? And what were the early signs that I didn't pay attention to? 
and you'll always find them. You say, oh, I know this wasn't working, but I thought that love could conquer. Because you may be ready to change, but your, your co-author, your partner may not be ready to change. So that's, a, that's the first thing you do. And the second thing you do is you ask yourself, how am I abandoning me in the process? And you begin to work on yourself. Let's say the relationship is over. Great opportunity for you to learn commitment to self. So as you do, the bioinformational field changes. The, the sense of who you are changes. And you begin to attract. That's why alcoholics attract alcoholics. And people that have been sexually abused attract people that have been sexually abused. Because it's an intimate language of love. And when you change that, you'll see people coming two miles away. This is an abandonment uh, person here. No. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into that. Because at first we're 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 weak in the sense that we, we don't have it worked out very well. It's like not telling your age. I believe that you should never tell your age because you're put into that portal and they start treating you that way until you're strong enough, like centenarians, that they're strong enough and they made it, and they can tell their age and usually what they do is they lie. They tell you they're if they're hundred and two, they tell you they're hundred and twenty. But that's okay. But while, while you're working through and you're not strong enough or not, you're still building that concept, don't tell your age. Uh, let's say middle age is a portal. It's a portal of age. F you were 44 a day before. At 45, you're in the portal of middle age. You begin to, without knowing, dress like middle age, act like middle age, and get sick like the middle age, supported by the cultural editors of medicine. Well, what do you want? You're middle age. I want to go back to college. No, you'd be thinking about retirement. You see, they mold you into that portal because it's good for the collectivism and it has a socioeconomic value too because it's powerful. You, know, you begin to sell to the, to the middle age. and so, so you have to be real careful with that. And then once you learn that, then you say, okay, now I have tools. One of my tools is that I'm going to start working on me, on my commitment. I'm going to be looking at the people that don't allow me to be committed. And I'm going to look for evidence of commitment in myself and co-authoring with other people, your world begins to change. Those are the tools for the change. Now let's talk about this third archetypal wound and the healing field. I just really want to cover this because I think it's quite an interesting part of your work. It's betrayal with the healing field of loyalty. So how would I know if I had the wound, the archetypal wound of betrayal? Well, betrayal is, is the most difficult. It's workable, but it's most difficult. And I'll tell you why. Because when someone betrays you, not only have they tricked you, but you have to question your sense of humanity. How good is humanity? How good is the world? And, and, and there's a, a deceptive sense that, am I ever going to trust anybody? Are people worthy of, of being trusted? It really is a shock. That's it's a strong. Mm -hmm. But knowing that the loyalty is the, uh, the healing field, then you have something to hold on to. So let's say you've been betrayed for whatever, at work, a partner, whatever. First, you have to realize that you were co-authoring the betrayal in the sense that you already brought in the possibility of being betrayed. In some cases, not all, all cases. You could be betrayed and not have the wound of betrayal. But you always look for it to see if it's there. And then what is the loyalty that you have to create? The loyalty that I create for myself is that I'm going to be loyal to my beliefs. I'm going to be loyal to, to my intuition. And the question that people come up is, so what's the difference between commitment and loyalty? And the difference is, commitment is a commitment to a situation, to a person, to a belief. The loyalty is a commitment to something much greater than that, uh, something that, uh, that, that is much higher at, at the bioinformational level. It's, it's, a, it's a commitment to, a, um, to something greater than yourself, much higher than honor, much higher than, mm -hmm. than commitment. It's, I am loyal to this belief at any price. And so it's a, it's a, it's a commitment to a devotion mm. would be one way to look at it. Mm. The other one is a commitment to a condition. Mm. So one has a higher, more exalted emotion. And if I can ask you a personal question for a moment, Mario, which of these three has been the predominant one in your personal experience? Well, uh, I, I'll say it without melodrama because some authors tell you, oh, look, yeah, poor sure. me. Now, this is a wonderful. Uh, at 12, my father left. And at that age, what you ask yourself, what did I do wrong? Abandonment. Came back, left again. Yeah. Okay, so abandonment was mine. So I was always looking for someone to abandon me in school and all that. So 
before knowing biocognition, I suffered a lot. I didn't know how to deal with it. It's just uh, something wrong with me. I'm, I'm Hispanic. I'm not blonde. You know, you, you look for attributions that have, not, have nothing to do with it. So when I realized that, that, uh, that there were ways to, to work this out, especially after working with other cultures, okay, commitment. And I, I noticed that I would, I would not commit to anything. I would do things, and just at the end of when I was finishing, I would drop it. And then my mother would reinforce it. You're just like your dad. You don't finish anything. Mm -hmm. So I had to go through that process, and I had to learn to find commitment evidence. And I went back, and I found a lot of commitment. I had committed to many things. I don't have to... But, but once you do that, then it begins to shake up the wound, and it begins to allow you to develop relationships with people who also are into that consciousness of commitment, that you can count on them. The most beautiful thing for me is that I can count on somebody. That to me is, why? Because I came from that wound. Am I still wounded? No. So the key is that you can heal yourself with, with help and with, with co-authors of, of wellness. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, Mario, the subtitle of your new book, The Mind-Body Code, is How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success. And later we're going to talk about how to change the beliefs that limit your longevity. And we're talking a little bit about health right now. But for the moment, I want to focus on the beliefs that might limit my success, the listener's success in the world. And you talk about something that you call abundance phobia. Can you tell us what do you mean by that? Well, we have um, what I call ceilings of abundance. Mm -hmm. And if you want to test it... Uh, what you do is you, you uh, money's a real concrete thing. You can use love, but I think money's concrete. You can say, okay, I'm making X amount of money a year. I'm going to multiply that times 50 and see what I can do with that. And uh, under deep relaxation, you always get relaxed because of the intellect won't let you go there to protect you. So you go there and you say, I'm making so much. And now with 50 times more, what could I do? And you start thinking, I'm going to help this person. I'm going around the world. And after you do all that, Check your body, and you're going to see tension in your body because you created turbulence at the horizons. Yeah. So that's the first thing to, to work on. And second is that since that's where the self-esteem is tied around, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this kind of love. I'm okay with this kind of health. Uh, I'm okay with this kind of wealth. When your horizons are shaken, it causes tension. You, it's like, like, like fight or flight. And what we do is in order to relieve that tension... We go back to the known misery or the known uh, ceilings that we have. So it's important to know those those um, um, turbulences because if you don't, you you ask yourself, why am I feeling so tense? If I, these wonderful things are happening to me, anytime anything happens good to me or some great news, I stop and I do the technique to allow my worthiness to accept it, so I don't get sick and I don't sabotage it. Okay, so with this idea of this ceiling of abundance, let's say somebody imagines themselves 50 times more wealthy, and they realize that they're very uncomfortable because they have an idea that it's not fair. It's just not fair. It's not fair for all the other people who don't have money and for me to have so much. And What do they do with that belief then? I mean, they believe this. They believe they it's believe not it. fair. And so what, how do they change that belief? And it's very real, and you embody it. Where do, where do you feel it? The embodiment is a, is a key component of biocognition. Because we learn things mind-body culture, and you try to fix them mind, and you're leaving out two components. So we have the mind-body culture. So I'm making so much money now, and uh, and I'm I'm feeling so guilty uh, because there are poor people in Bangladesh, and and it's not fair. Okay, embody. Who taught me that kind of deprivation? Who taught me deprivation? And whoever taught you deprivation, you're going to have to betray abandon or shame if you want to go on. And let's say it's quite burdened with the fact that I learned that from the church or my religious institution of some kind, or I learned that from my family. And so, you know, I don't, that's, those are the last people I want to betray. Yes, exactly. So you see it, you have a real existential and transcendental conflict there. Yeah. If I make it, I'm going to have to betray the people that love me or the people that took care of the people within the, the yeah. pale. So it's a major, major thing. So there's a process that I, that I teach that uh, what you do is you identify, and, and it's counterintuitive to say, who am I going to betray if I do well? Or who am I going to abandon if I do well, but you do. So you bring that person in into your field of, under deep relaxation, 
and you say, I'm abandoning you, or betrayal, whatever it is. Let's say, I'm betraying you because now I'm going to be doing better than you, Dad. And you never made it, and I did. And then what you do, since you created that space, then you go back and you become your dad. And your dad says, no, you're not betraying me. You're being loyal to yourself. I'll let you go. And since it's your space and you experience your dad and you experience you, the bioinformational, bioinformational fields begins to recontextualize that. And then you need evidence. All right, what can I do with, with all this money? Or what can I do with all this wealth or whatever? Yeah. I can be a model for poor people to understand that, uh, that, I, that they can make it too. I can help other people. Uh, I can do a lot of things. But one of the things that governments do, and this is not political, this is all governments, is that they manipulate the poor to stay poor, to get votes. They say, the poor are noble and the rich are uh, evil. So who wants to come out of their novelty or their, their novel, no, uh, nobleness and become evil? Uh, so, so what they're saying is you got to stay poor because you're noble when you're poor, but if you come out, then no longer. And I think that when you're wealthy, you can be just noble as, as, as you were when you were poor. And, and socioeconomics has nothing to do with the character. You could be evil, poor, or evil, wealthy. But in order to expand the, the abundance uh, uh, ceilings, what you do is you make a commitment that that money is going gonna, is gonna to have some, some value to you, to your family, and to other people. Uh, you, the philanthropist archetype comes out, and that kills the deprivation uh, guilt. Mm. You know, I, I noticed that for me there's a question running through our conversation that I just want to make really explicit which is from your understanding of mind-body culture, biocognition, how do people change? How do people actually change? And I say this because many times people say, you know, I tried all these different things. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. You know, I read this book on uh, XYZ and I'm still not changing. And it seems to me that you're getting into some of the root system, if yes. you will, of what could be stopping the impediments to real change. So, okay, Mario, how do people make the changes they want to make in their life? That's a great question. If you're not ready to answer questions practically with your theory, your theory's weak. So I, that's a great question. The most important thing is when people say, I tried this, I tried that, they either tried it intellectually or they tried it emotionally. They went to a workshop and they cried and they did all these wonderful things. That's emotional. Or they intellectualized and they understood that the not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So what do you have to do? You have to, number one, identify that if you make a change, you're going to have to wound somebody. And if you make a change, you're going to have, you're going to, have to give yourself evidence that you're worthy of the change. And when we don't change, it doesn't matter what it is, I will argue that you don't feel worthy of the change. So you have to work on the worthiness before you try to make the change. And in the book, I talk about how to prepare yourself for change because you just can't change. You can't, it doesn't work that way. You have to prepare the terrain so that then you can do the change with sustainability. Let's talk some about that, being worthy of the change. Because I think you've done a good job of describing who I'm going to have to be willing to disappoint or who I'm going to have to ask to have a different view internally of my success. But now the second part, I have to be worthy be worthy. Um, yeah, so help me with that. Okay. The worthy, again, practical. The way that I break down self-valuation or self-esteem is into three parts, and, and we have to work on that to create our worthiness. Worthiness means that, I've, that I can allow uh, an abundance of love, health, and wealth without sabotaging it or getting sick. That's how I define it. Okay, so what do you do? The three parts, very operational parts of self-esteem. One is the valuation of self-esteem. How valued do I feel in good things happening to me? How much value do I give myself? The second, and, and I'll, I'll give you a ways of getting into okay. it, John, but the second one is the, um, the competence self-esteem. How competent am I at what I do? And the third, which nobody looks at, is the affiliation self-esteem. What quality of relationships do I have? They look at it indirectly, but not in an operational way. And as you know, in biocognition, I take things that are very complex and I make them very simple. Very simple to work on that. How do you bring up the meter on valuation? And how do you bring it down? You bring it up when you make self-caring commitments and you keep them. 
when you break them, it goes down. And it could be, I'm going for a walk today. Your friend calls, let's go to a movie. Okay. Uh, you break it, it goes down. No, I'm sorry, but I have a... I'm, you can say anything you want. But the cultures don't support that. See, the cultures support the value of the collectiveness. You're not worthy. If you say... And, and they support illness because you say, no, I'm, I'm going to spend some time with myself. I'm going to meditate. Oh, you can meditate some other time. But if you say you have a migraine, okay. So illness becomes a passport to set limits. Mm. So, so then what do you do? You, you work with, with valuation self-esteem and you begin to look for evidence, always evidence-based. The second competence is a lot easier because are you good at what you do or not? If you expand your learning, which a the brain always needs to expand the learning. Competent self-esteem goes up. Workshops, uh, doing things that, that, that challenge your, your intellect, uh, improving your relationship, improving what you eat, anything like that brings it up. What brings it down? Stagnation. Doctors or psychologists or pediatricians or whatever, oh, no, I don't go to workshops. I've, I, I don't need any of that. And they, they stay where they are. Competent self-esteem goes down. And you can see, for example, where a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, extremely competent, and he gets home or she gets home and gets beat up by the partner emotionally. They have valuation self-esteem, um, competent self-esteem, but they don't have valuation self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And the third, which is so important to the third is, who are the quality people that I bring in to share my abundance? Mm. And every time I ask a centenarian throughout the cultures, what is your concept of wealth? the quality of the friendships I have, all of them. They could have a lot of money or not money. So the, the, the affiliation self-esteem I learned when I was doing the field work in anthropology, that you know what matters is that, and here's where the subcultures of wellness come in too. If you don't have affiliation self-esteem, quality people to support your wellness and all that, then you may have competence and valuation, but you're alone in a cave. And, that, and health requires all three of them. So then that's how you build your worthiness. And once you build, and, and that in itself is a task before you try to do anything with abundance. That it's a, it's a step before. It's a creating the terrain. Yeah, part of what I'm curious about is, let's say somebody wants to do something relatively simple in terms of making a behavior change in their life. Let's say somebody wants to lose weight. They have all the intellectual knowledge in the world. It's not that simple. Exercise more, eat less calories, however you come up with that but they're not doing it. And underneath they sense, you know, yeah, it's probably some kind of worthiness, some way that I'm punishing myself, something like that. How would Mario help me with this relatively simple task that I'm trying to do? Well, I'll tell you what I do with, with obese and, and eating disorders. Yeah. The first thing is that I don't work, if, if you define success by weight gain or, gain, uh, weight, uh, or weight loss, failure nothing to do with weight what happens is that we try to change behavior rather than the operating consciousness that controls that behavior so if you have an operating consciousness or the goggles that you use to look at the world that says I am not worthy of good things or I am going to self-sabotage then you'll give you'll stop eating but you start drinking you stop drinking but you start smoking or you go to porno and, and you go, you'll do distractions and Addictions, compulsions, uh, obsessions are distractions from some fear that we have. It could be an existential fear of, of death or the fear of, uh, of succeeding or whatever it is, but it's always a fear. So what happens? We learn a great language of um, distracting ourselves. And what do therapists do? Speak the distracting language. How, how much weight have you lost? Uh, did you do one line of cocaine or did you do two? That's what they want. That's why it doesn't work. It's distracting when I work with uh, people who are obese, I don't care what you ate. I mean, you know, you, te you teach them about the good food, and, but don't tell me whether you gain or lost. That's indirect. That has nothing to do with it. What are you avoiding and how can I teach you to not avoid these things? That's what we concentrate on. And then I'm going to teach you how to love food. And the first thing they say, I love food too much. You need food. You don't abuse what you love. You abuse what you need. And actually, they learn to love food but they also learn to pick up the, the, the false signals of, of, of hunger. They, uh, people who are overweight, um, who, who have a problem with overweight, by the way, you could be a little overweight and, and live longer than the people that are underweight. 
but I'm not suggesting, you know, you, but if you're overweight and you want to lose weight, then you begin to identify the cues that are mistakenly interpreted. You're bored, you think you're hungry. You're tired, you think you're hungry. You're anxious, you think you're hungry. So we give them ways of identifying the uh, signal and responding with the correct tool. Then whatever is left, you love it and you go eat and you love. And if you abuse the, the you're not loving it. Okay, I'm not loving it. I abused it. Next time I'm going to love it. But I'm going to realize that I was listening to a cue of anxiety rather than a cue of, of hunger. And, and you're teaching your physiology, your mind-body culture. You're teaching it that these are the cues that I'm going to respond to, not to any cue. That's very helpful, Mario. Now, I, I want to draw a quote from the book that I think is appropriate at this point in our conversation and have you talk about it, which is beyond just something like trying to lose weight, you write in the book about addictions. And you mentioned that you've worked with thousands of people to help them recover from addictions. And here's what you write. Addictions are socio-cultural self-distractions that serve to avoid worthiness and are not diseases at all. So help me understand that. Socio-cultural self-distractions. Okay, and then I'll talk about why they're not illnesses. We we need to be empowered. If we're out of uh, rats, humans, if we're out of power, we're disempowered, we're helpless, and we're in a state of, um, of turbulence, and we want to regain our power. Okay. The only way that we can't get, regain our power is with our mortality. We're the only animal that, that knows that we're mortal. That's the ultimate transcendental loss of power. Other animals don't know that no. they, they watch other animals die. They, they watch, watch them die, and, yeah. and you notice they go to them because they don't understand death, and, and they sometimes they even bury them, but they don't have the cognition to understand that this is a transcendental process that ends. So what I have found is with many, many patients, that I've, uh, people that I've worked with, with phobias, and is that the ultimate fear is a fear of death. It could be anxiety about other things, public speaking, whatever, but the fear of death is that's the one that you can't work through. There is a way to work it through, but but you don't think that you can. So what happens is that you go into the tr what I call the fear triad with addictions. And what is a fear triad? You notice that when, you, when I first started doing therapy, I would intellectually tell, tell people, well, look, you know, the smoking's going to kill you. You're going to have emphysema. Well, yeah, I know, doc. I know. And, or, or they're smoking from their tracheectomy when they're, when they're dying. Fear doesn't work. Intellect doesn't work because it has nothing to do with rational thinking. So the fear triad is, let's, let, let's use death, a fear of death. There are others, but the fear of death I, is I think a, that works. Is, that yeah. works. That's yeah, the sure. biggest. Yeah. What's the fear triad? First, you take the addiction and you use it as a distraction. Anytime that I have any thoughts, not even conscious, of death or my, or my mortality or my end, I'm going to distract myself. What will I use? Let's say cigarettes. Okay. Or let's say alcohol. Sure. All right. I'm distracting myself with alcohol. Second, defiance. Since I am mortal, I'm going to make myself immortal. Let's see how much my liver can handle subconsciously, the alcohol. Mm. And, and then it begins to make sense that people are really killing themselves, although they don't want to kill themselves. So they're defying their mortality. And the third is the choice. If I'm going to go, I'm going to go with cirrhosis. Totally subconscious. So it begins to make sense why it doesn't work when you try to bring fear into the situation or you try to bring reason into the situation. When I work with uh, drug addicts, they know more pharmacology than I do. They know what to do, what not to do. What they don't know is the avoidance that they're doing. And then as you teach them to deal with the avoidance and the fear triad, then you realize that they also have to deal with their, with their co-authors. The co-authors may not be ready. The co-authors may be a codependent relationship. I've worked with people who, as they start getting better, their partners uh, start giving them hell because then they have, they're going to have to face, now I'm not drinking, and now I'm going to have to have a, a, a reasonable conversation during dinner with you. And you beat me up every time I try to talk to you. Oop, I'm going to go have to back and drink. So you have to face, and you also have to face that your co-authors may not be ready to change. So you may not be able to live with, be with that person if you want to give up your, your addiction or whatever it is. So there, there are a lot of practical tools in the book about that. But, but I, and, and as you know, one of the chapters is only about the science behind all the work. 
the psychoneurological uh, work, the cultural neuroscience, to give you a sense that there's good news from science, but not the bad science that, that teaches you that uh, if, you, uh, if you live long enough, you'll die of cancer. That's not true. It doesn't work that way. Now, it seems like the key here in changing from an addictive pattern or some kind of obsessive, compulsive relationship to food is this awareness of what we're distracting ourselves from. Yes. That's not necessarily something that's just presto magico for no. people to tell themselves the truth about whatever's happening for them. How can you help people develop that awareness? Well, as you said, it's, it's not an intellectual thing. If you say, uh, they all tell me, well, I'm not distracting myself from anything. I'm fine. But when you teach them the technique of going into their bodies and identifying when they want to do a drug and what happens to that, to that body, the body could be going through withdrawals or whatever, but, but they, there are ways that they can learn to identify, I'm anxious right now. Uh, and I'm anxious because when I get home, I'm going to have to talk to my partner. And they begin to identify the, the operational behavior of what they're avoiding. All right, so if I don't do the drug now, and I teach them a you know, relaxation technique to get rid of the, the sharp edge that they feel with needing the drug, okay, how am I going to address this and what wound am I coming in with? Just, you see how biocognition begins to come together then with that. I'm afraid to confront because I was, I was damaged and wounded with abandonment. So my partner's going to abandon me emotionally or physically when I confront. But as you work the healing fields, you build up your self-esteem and your worthiness, and you can confront that. So it's a, it's, a, it's a complex process, but with practical tools. It's not an overnight thing. And there's some people that w would... I have had patients who would rather die than change because they didn't want to go to the third level of change, which is I have to confront my environment. They, they would literally rather die yeah. than set limits. Yeah. And that's okay. If that's what they want to do, you know, you respect it, and, yeah. and you go on. You said an interesting quote in this conversation, illness becomes a passport to set limits. I mean, that was so worthy of note. I, I wrote it down here during our conversation today that people will get ill as a way to set limits versus speaking up for themselves and saying, you know, I, don't, I want time alone or I can't give you what you want, sorry, or whatever it might be. There's a strong component to that, and I want to be uh, very... Um, um, scientific about it and at the same time not yeah. get into the reductionism. There's no question that we have genetic predispositions. DNA cannot be changed. The expression of the genes can be changed epigenetically and it can be changed with many things. So if you have a propensity for a particular illness, you could, have, you could either create a bioinformational field that triggers that genetic exp uh, expression or not. So what happens then with our cultures? Two things with an illness is one of the components of illness. This is not the cause of illness, one of the f contributing factors. It, it either allows you to get out of something that you don't want to do or that, that, that is something you don't want to do because it's something that you don't like or that it lets you get out of something that's good but you don't feel worthy of. Mm. It has those two functional components. And I would argue that unless you work those through, those two through, and identify what it is, you could be cured but not healed. Medicine does not go that, that deep. Medicine is wonderful, but it doesn't take you to that level. Uh, it doesn't take you to that level that, uh, okay, for example, let's say that, that you had a very abusive relationship and, and nobody paid attention in your family, and now you triggered the propensity for cancer and you have cancer. Now you have professionals paying attention to you. Now your partner can't do that to you because you're sick your family's paying attention to you, do you think that you want to heal and go back to what you had before? No. So in order to change, in order to really have a healing that's sustainable, you have to change where you came from. Otherwise, the body will say, no, you're going to go back to pain, stay with the cancer, you know, in, in a sense. But there's no question that there's genetic and environmental. But I, I would say that the strongest in all of this is the one that I'm talking about. Why? because you don't see the pathology of aging with centenarians that you see. And by the way, I, I only work with centenarians that are healthy because I want to know healthy longevity. I don't want to know unhealthy longevity. That's not going to teach me anything. Healthy longevity is going to teach me something. And anytime I talk to a healthy centenarian, I have nothing to teach them. I can't teach them anything. They're teaching me. 
And that brings us to the end of the first part of our program. In the second part of our conversation, Maria, I want to pick up with this idea of healthy centenarians and what we can learn from them. It's great talking to you, Guy. I mean, honestly, I keep going into this semi-dream state. (laughs) Now, you talk about this in your work, this semi-dream state. What what is it? What's happening to me over here? What's happening is that that as I talk to you, things are exploding in your bioinformational field, and you're getting excited about the things that that, that could happen. But also, I think that what it does is it's giving you concrete tools, pathways to look at things, not just worthy, worthy kinds of things. It's not poetics. It's information that you can apply. My bioinformational field is definitely being affected. <laughs> Good. Mine too. And when I talk about it, I get the same thing too. I'm learning from myself constantly, so it's a, it's a great thing. Yeah. This concludes part one of our conversation with Mario Martinez, the author of a new book, The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success. Soundstree.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for part two.